Asia Tech Podcast with Graham Brown and Michael Waits. And welcome to Asia Tech Podcast. We are the voice of the Asian tech ecosystem broadcasting to you the first broadcast of 2018. My name's Graham Brown in Tokyo. Joining me from uh, Bangkok studio is Michael Waits. Michael, how are you doing? Happy New Year, Graham. Happy New Year. I am doing super. It's going to be a good year as well. We're not just going to talk about what's coming up. We've got a very big announcement coming up next week, which uh, we want to tell you about something you can get a hold of, something you can download, some exciting insights and trends that we want you to get your hands on, which is going to make a big difference in 2018. But maybe we need to put this into context and talk about 2017. Yeah, and look, this fits into one of the things that we talked about last year, one of the larger themes, right? And that was, you know, moving away from this concept of being entertained Hmm. as opposed to being informed, right? And that's a big deal. And what we're going to put out next week is something that should be very informative for people to use as, you know, reference points for, you know, the rest of 2018. And it's really an outgrowth of a lot of the sort of effort that we put into 2017, right? So if you look from my perspective, and add in where you think it's necessary. But from my perspective, you know, we interviewed a lot of people. We talked to a lot of people. We talked about a lot of subjects. We hit on a whole bunch of things. And I think one of the outcomes of all of the knowledge that we gained, and, and God, I mean, I, I learned so much yeah. last year by talking to all the people that we spoke to, building all those relationships that we built. I mean, I thought that was amazing in and, it's, in and of itself. But here's, the, here's one of the big takeaways that I learned. It's very simple, but it's very powerful. And that is... Asia matters. And it matters more and more as time goes on, um, whether it's from a technology standpoint, whether it's from a household standpoint, whether it's from an income standpoint, a development standpoint, from an innovation standpoint. I could go on and on. But the key takeaway for me from last year was more than ever, Asia matters. Mm. It's a state, like it's the stability alone makes it important. But the growth, and we can get into some statistics, which I have a feeling we have a lot of data to talk about, (laughs) which we'll never be able to cover all today. No. But I feel like from that perspective, Asia definitely matters. And what do you think? So if it matters a lot, right, what do do we rely, and I say we in, in its most royal sense, but do we rely on other parts of the world for us mattering? Or do we matter just because Asia matters in and of itself? What do you think? Right. So there's a narrative, isn't there? And I think we, we sort of unpack this a little bit because I think being outsiders in on the inside, in a way, gives us a bit yeah. more a qualified view of what the world really looks like. And I think one of the things that we were acutely aware of, I mean, you come from the US, I come from the UK, we're acutely aware of this narrative, which sort of positions Asia as such, which is that, okay, Asia is very big. It's very big and very cheap. It's a market of billions um, but it's, you know, it's sort of pennies on the dollar compared to what it is back in the US. Yep. And it's also a copycat market. And it's a market that needs Silicon Valley to really have some kind of validity, isn't it? That's kind of one of the big narratives that, yeah, I mean, Asia is important, but it can't really go it alone. It still needs Facebook or Google. It still needs the Silicon Valley angels and investors and VCs to make the whole thing work. Yep. So I kind of think, you know, when you ask me, does it matter? I think we have to unpack a little bit that narrative and work out what is the reality? I mean, is Asia really just sort of a an echo of what's happening in the Valley and, you know, places like Tel Aviv or Berlin or London? 
or is something else happening out there which is a bit more fundamental? Well, I think there's something a bit more fundamental is definitely going on. And I would make the case, you know, and I always say this to you, like disagree with me when you feel like it's necessary, but I would make the case that Asia matters in and of itself on its own, completely unrelated to what's happening anymore in Silicon Valley. Mm. Right. One of the words that I used to describe like the stuff that we learned last year was innovation from an innovation standpoint. You're seeing a massive amount of innovation patents. Mm. We can let's do you want to talk? Do you want to throw that out there just for a reference point? Right. Yeah. How many patents for how many patents for were filed in the Greater Bay, which probably people haven't heard right, of. Right. But Greater Bay is a, just a, a very large landmass in, in the southern part of China. Okay. Versus San Francisco Bay, so the Bay mm-hmm. Area, which is what people call you know Silicon Valley as well. Right. So we're going to come back and talk about the Greater Bay in a minute because this is a, a yeah. key conversation, isn't it? So you yeah. asked me how many invention patents were filed. So. Here's the interesting thing. Compare Greater Bay with San Francisco Bay, which is kind of like, you know, the home of innovation as we kind of see it. 2016, yeah, yeah. the most latest data on this uh, invention patents, mm-hmm. Greater Bay, 100 and, uh, 192,000 patents were filed. So that's in, that's just in one part of Asia, yeah? Right, right. In that that what they used to call the Pearl Delta. We talk about that in a minute. But compare yeah. that 192,000 to San Francisco Bay, where you have Facebook and etc. 54,000. So effectively, <laughs> four times as many patents have been filed in the Greater Bay than the San Francisco Bay. Yeah. And that whole sort of narrative about copycat Asia, I think, needs to be turned on its head a little bit because this is not just a recent thing. This has been happening over the last five years. Greater Bay has outstripped the San Francisco Bay by a factor of at least two, but now it's a factor of four. So these aren't just people who are copying the latest you know, technology from the US. They're making their own and they're making yeah, significantly I mean, more of their own, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't know about you, but from all of my reading, I don't think there are a lot of patents given out for copycatting things. Well, even in china right i mean you know to go through the effort to patent something of all places you know it's a big deal it's a massive deal but again that's just one data point right Right, so if you think about that who's copying whom Mm. right in other words if you're patenting something you've definitely invented something or you're being given credit for having an innovation I think that's really significant. And I think that's just one of the data points that says that it's not really like the way people perceive what's happening in Asia, at least outside of Asia. In, in Asia, we know what's going on. I don't even think that's a surprise for you or for me. Hmm. But I think from that perspective, it's no longer a copycat. And what that means is that we don't need what's happening in Silicon Valley. The right. work China has been existing without Google and without Facebook for a decade. Yeah. It hasn't seemed to have changed any any of their ability to run social networks, have viral spreading of news, or any of the things that are associated with those two companies. I think China and the rest of Asia has been just fine in places where those companies don't exist. And where they do exist, their impact actually is okay, but you know they're not driving the innovation in this region at any level. Let's zoom in, zoom in on that greater bay, because I think once people get a handle of what that's about, and we've talked about the innovation that's going on there. But I think there's, you know, for a lot of people outside of Asia, they may not understand what the Greater Bay is. And, you know, people may have heard of like, you know, that sort of conurbation of cities around the Pearl Delta. So you've got Hong Kong and so on. Right. But let's sort of back up a little bit. You went there, you went to Hong Kong 
and took a ferry to Macau. So tell us a little bit about that, because that's a key part of the story here and how that's changing, right? Yeah, so I don't remember if it was 1990 or 1991, but it was a long time ago, okay? Right. And we went to Hong Kong, <clears throat> you know, for a friend's wedding or a bachelor party, and we went to Macau, and we took the ferry from from Hong Kong to Macau and then took the ferry back. And I think the most interesting thing to me about it, I don't remember how long it took, 45 minutes, an hour, whatever it was, but do you know, maybe you do, maybe you don't know this, but there's now a bridge. Yeah. I read about this re- really recently. I know they've been must have been working on this for a while, but there's a bridge that now goes from Hong Kong to Macau. Yeah. It's 50 kilometers bridge. So it probably took a bit That's longer insane. than 40. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> across the water, right? I mean, it's not like, you know, you no. go across land. Yeah. Yeah, I mean that. That's uh, there's, there's sort of a couple of stories there, isn't there? There's one in which they're building this greater bay, but also there's this vision, isn't there, that we're just going to connect these two cities. It's just going to okay, we're going to do this, and it, okay, it's fifty kilometers, just just build it. And there's plenty of those examples all around Asia. But let, let's talk about the greater bay itself in terms of the numbers, because there's some really interesting quotes here. We got a quote from Tony Verb, who you interviewed right. on the show. Yeah, Tony was amazing, right? So Tony's very interested in cities, in smart cities, in building cities. And yeah, so I interviewed him, right? And his the quote for him is that the Greater Bay has 66 million people in it and a $1.3 trillion GDP. That's today. Yeah, yeah. Just think about the scale and the scope of that. So the combination of these 11 cities, I think it is, if I'm talking off the top of my head, his and his, the continuation of that quote is what's happening there, right? It, it is not happening anywhere else in the world and it can't happen anywhere else just mm-hmm. because of the scale and it's just a once in a lifetime process of urbanization in that area and then the connectivity of all those cities it is just as as bloomberg says it's a mega market mm-hmm. in waiting yeah and the rest of the world doesn't know yeah exactly you wouldn't know people would know hong kong some may know macau but all the rest is kind of like, well, I mean, for those outside Asia, they wouldn't know. But this thing's happening. I mean, go back to that data, Michael. I mean, what Tony's talking about is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. You know, it's a $1.3 trillion market. And they say it's going to grow to, what's the numbers? It's about $4 trillion, $4.6 trillion by 2030. So in 12 years to $4.6 trillion, comparatively... What San Francisco, as an example, San Francisco is about 700, 800 billion. Yeah, but think about this. So, and I think one of the key stats that you pointed out to me actually when we were off the phone, and I may have this wrong, right? But when the Greater Bay, and we'll talk about GDP per capita in the city by city in a second, when the Greater Bay matches San Francisco on a GDP per capita basis, the it'll be over $6 trillion of GDP there. Right, right. Bigger than Japan. Just, yeah, just in that one area, right? Yeah. That's insane. Like, that's really what insane. What does that do? I mean, when you put all those, you, you've got all those cities. We're going to publish all this data. So I know we're reeling out a whole bunch of data and headline stats. And we're going to tell you how you can get a copy of this so you can get access to all this data over the next coming weeks. That whole Greater Bay area where you've got this conurbation of 11 cities and some wealthy cities as well macau hong kong I mean shenzhen as well is no like poor city these are cities mm-hmm. on a on a par with a, maybe a european city um or maybe a, a level two u.s city you know what happens when you, you get all that concentration of capital and people and technology in one place 
Right. So I want to run through this in just a little more detail, if you don't mind. And mm-hmm. you alluded to it, but I just want to say it. So Macau is a special place, right? Because first of all, the population is small. And second of all, industry there for now is highly concentrated in, in, um, in gambling and tourism, right? And that's okay. But Hong Kong has a GDP per capita, according to the World Bank in 2016, of 44,000 US dollars. Okay, the UK is 39, so almost 40, and Japan is 39, with the US just a little bit ahead at $57,000. But let's look at the rest of the cities there. Shenzhen is 31,000, right? Zhuhai is 19,000. You have Foshan, and I'm going to mispronounce some of these, right? Chongshan is like 14,000. Guangzhou is 20,000. And it's just not that far behind. And I think people's perception is that, you know, all of China is very poor. It's not at all. Um, and we'll talk later about Asia and how the wealthiest part of the mm-hmm. population is the youngest part of the population just regionally, which I think is really significant and important. But what happens, you said, when all of these places catch up from an economic standpoint? Well, I'll tell you what happens. You're going to talk about a massive secular geopolitical a geoeconomic shift from one part of the globe to another part of the globe, and it's irreversible. Hmm. I really believe that it's irreversible. And I mean, argue with me if you think that that's wrong, but I think it's going to be impossible to reverse that trend. And the other thing is that while these this region and these countries are focusing on real economic growth, technical innovation, and patenting new things and have stopped copycatting things, what you're going to find is that you look at that in comparison to what's going on, and I'm going to put Europe and the United States in the same category, right, with Brexit and people saying, I don't want to be part of this union anymore, and I'm breaking up, and I think there are better ways to run economies on a smaller basis as opposed to one large group, right, which is what the whole Eurozone was supposed to be about and why the UK was part of that zone. And the US, which should have learned back, you know, 70 years ago that closing off your borders and Mm -hmm. shutting off access for the rest of the world to come into your country is just not only really negative from an optimism, pessimism standpoint, but it's bad from an economic standpoint. The last time the U.S. became protectionist and started looking internal as opposed to external, you you had the Great Depression. Like, this is just bad. Mm. And that, so that's what I think the result of that thing is going to be. And as the rest of the world gets richer, particularly in Asia, they're not going to care. Yeah. Yeah. It becomes self-sufficient. That's the key, isn't it? It does. And self-sustaining. Need, yeah. yeah. They don't, they don't need it. And you get that sort of knock-on effect as well, which is, we'll talk about it in, in coming episodes as well, is that there's the talent concentration as well. So where there's money, you attract talent. So in these concentrations, of people and money you find that you know you attract sort of world-class talent who are key to facilitating the 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 startup scene i mean people like tony verb as an example has moved to that area and we've done a number of interviews with people in shenzhen in hong kong as well just as an example of you know the talent that has been attracted to the area just because that real sense of change and possibility as well that's happening in that area as he says, it's once in a lifetime, and I don't think we'll see anything like it in our lifetime for sure. I mean, right? And 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 Graham, if you consider that you know, economies and sort of economic activity kind of goes in in um, 
<clears throat> sorry, in waves, right? And one of the things that we're seeing is, and I don't think people will believe this until they see the statistics, but it seems like entrepreneurship, right? Starting your own company, getting funded, all this stuff in the United States is exploding, right? right? That it's becoming the new way of living as big companies continue to lay people off, that the new way to work and the new way to get a job is to make that job yourself and to become an entrepreneur. But what do the statistics tell you? Well, I don't know where where we can go with this, but when I read the stats, I mean, corroborate this stuff elsewhere as well. And this is an ongoing conversation that we're having. But yeah. that, that whole narrative about entrepreneurship in the US and startups, is it happening? Is it real? But this is data from the Wall Street Journal in 2016, which basically shows an overall decline in US entrepreneurship over the last 25 years, which has started in 1990. 10% of households were headed by somebody under 30 who had a stake in or owned a privately held business. So an entrepreneur. So in 1990, 10% of the US households were headed by an entrepreneur. Whereas in 2015, so 25 years later, that number had fallen to just over three and a half percent. Wow. That's all, so it's like a third. Yeah. I, mean, I can't get my head around how severe that decline has been, right? Especially in the, in the light of everything we hear about the wealth generation and the job creation by, you know, the startup communities in the U.S. and North America and what have you. You know, is it actually happening? Because the data says it isn't. The data says, okay, well, maybe that is happening. But the reality is that there are fewer and fewer entrepreneurs. And that there's a whole bunch of reasons for that, you know, without getting into too much detail. It's just not the vanguard of entrepreneurship it once was. So I think that means, and you know, we, we're, we're, I'm testing this thesis as well as I know you are. I think Asia is the new home of global entrepreneurship. Yeah, I mean that, that's that's not said without any kind of consideration, and it's a controversial statement as well. What exactly do you mean? Because people always point to the. I mean, we see the ecosystems rankings. We're trying to sort of create the stories behind that and above that, right? Is that it's not just where the most capital is, right? There's a lot more going on because this is building out from the grassroots up. They're building the base of a future ecosystem which will have more capital than the US and so on. Because there's a whole bunch of other stuff that goes into this. There's like, you know, the legislation, there's the talent and so on. You know, what exactly do you mean when you say it's the new home of entrepreneurship? Well, so, well, so Alpha Beta, right, published something in, I believe in August or July of August of 2017. So Alpha Beta is a, um, it's a consulting company and a research company based in Singapore. And they put out an entire report on like what makes any individual country or any, any individual city like a great place for entrepreneurship. And what are the three things? What was it? Taxes, technology, and talent. Right. Mm. And one of the thing, one of the key takeaways from that report was that a lot of the things that the governments are doing, right? We can talk about the EEC, so the Eastern Economic Corridor in Thailand, which is getting built out as public information, right? What's going on in the Greater Bay, which we already mentioned, what Malaysia does through magic <clears throat> and, um, and cradle investments. We talked all year last year about what Singapore does from the, you know, the NRF and all the things that they do. The idea in the MDA programs that they do there, the Thailand has allocated a half a billion dollars last year to build out a tech ecosystem. You see co-working spaces here and people here focusing more on entrepreneurship than they ever have. And I think what that means is that really well-educated people, and we haven't touched on India at all, mm. right? But I think what it means is that there was a diaspora 
for lack of a better term. And we're going to keep talking about this as 2018 unfolds. But there was a diaspora of educated people from China, from India, from Thailand, from Malaysia, from Vietnam that are now saying, I would rather go home to my home country where there are greenfield opportunities and a billion people or more, half the world, right? Remember that chart we have? There are more people living inside this circle than living outside of it. Hmm. And if that was 15 years ago or 20 years ago, a lot of those people would have been poor, but they're not poor anymore. We should throw out some economic growth statistics according to, what is it, the IMF? Yeah, yeah. Do you have any of that information in front of you that says like what the growth statistics are or just the expected growth from the IMF, right? This is not like from some from some random group of economists somewhere. Yeah. Right? So uh, what what are the, what do those numbers look like? Well, there's a couple of stories here, isn't it? I mean, we all know yeah. that Asia's growing and it's growing fast. We know that. But let's sort of put that into context because there's a couple of stories going on here and you know, there's one about just how big China and India, for example, and some of the other markets like Indonesia are becoming in comparison. Oh, yeah, want, to, yeah, yeah. Th- there's that story. And there's also that story about the new tigers, which is, you know, this next generation of, you know, there's this concentration in Southeast Asia of markets coming online, right? Which have, you know, they have size and they have a real velocity of growth as well. So going back to, I mean, we all know how big China is. So, I mean, let's not even go there. Indonesia. Anybody outside <laughs> Asia probably wouldn't have a clue about Indonesia in terms of its size, and maybe some people know Bali. You know, maybe some Jakarta. Maybe. Is, yeah, exactly. It's not. It's not. Doesn't have a big profile outside of Asia, right? Not really. But you compare that to the UK, for example, which I, you know, in terms of rankings, is what four or five in the world, five maybe in terms of GDP. Yeah. Um, look at the data here from OECD. You know, Ind- Indonesia will pass the UK in terms of economy size by 2040. So 20 plus years from now, Indonesia will surpass UK in terms of importance, right? In terms of position at the top table. I mean, who the hell are Indonesia? But you know, there's this market of 250 million people. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right? That's who the hell they are. Exactly. And yeah. And it's growing really fast, right? So that economy, and I, th- I actually think, right? So who's this? This is uh, OECD data, right? Yeah. Let me tell you something. They're going to be wrong. And I, you know how wrong they're going to be? They're probably going to be wrong by like five to seven years. You think they're too and bearish? I'm, I'm too, too bearish. <laughs> That's what I think. Okay. And I want to be on record in saying that. It's that I don't think you can underestimate how fast that that economy is going to grow. Right. Because it's this virtuous circle. The richer you get, the more you invest. And if you talk to, and then the richer you get. And when I say rich, I just mean GDP per capita, GDP for the whole country. Right. And the more self-sustaining you get, remember, there's oil in this region, there's energy in this region. We haven't talked at all, and we will again in 2018, about how much money Asian governments and Asian entities are spending on renewable energy, which means they're not going to care anymore about oil. Some of the largest gas reserves, we talked about this as well, are in the Gulf of Thailand. Like, There's just so much energy here that all this stuff is is, um, self-sustaining. But just that mere fact of Indonesia – a country that most people don't know anything about is going to have a larger economy than the UK is really significant. And, and frankly, you know, in the same way that the UK did Brexit, so they're removing themselves in some ways, right? I don't yeah. have all the details off the top of my head from the European Union <clears throat> from an economic standpoint. 
Indonesia is participating in ASEAN. TPP is going to be really important, which we haven't talked about yet. And its relationship with China and the rest of the countries in the region is going to be really important as well. And they're going to continue to grow. And I think the growth is going to outpace what OECD thinks it's going to be. They'll be, they'll be bigger, faster than anybody would ever expect. There's a compounding as well, isn't there? Which yep. we're starting to see in places like Singapore and maybe places like Shenzhen, Hong Kong as well, which is one of the things we haven't really gone into is that the talent side. Um, one of the interviews I did with John Tanner on Asia yep. Tech Podcast was, and he's a recruitment, he runs a recruitment agency in Singapore yeah. from Australia. Um, you know, so he's not leaving um, shoddy conditions by any margin based in Melbourne, right? So, I mean, you know, lifestyle is good there, right? Pays good, lifestyle's good. Moved to Singapore, set up his consultancy there. And he's seeing this, this train is the only word I can think of, of talent moving now to places like Singapore, increasingly China as well. There's a tipping point, isn't there? I mean, where people would say, uh, yeah, no, Singapore's good, but yeah, it's Singapore. And people would never question, for example, moving to London or moving to San Francisco, you know, if they wanted to move to the Valley, right? There would never be that sort of questioning, like, yeah, right. but conversation. But there always was about, you know, Singapore, especially China. But now we're hitting that tipping point where people are saying, well, actually, you know, this is as good as anything else I'm going to get now. And that's now starting to affect other places. So Jakarta will be in the future one of those places where it might not be a yeah, but option. Same with Bangkok, Kuala Lumpur and so on. So I think, right. you know, when that talent shifts as well, that, that tipping point hit, then you'll get that further growth where you'll start to see skill, money, capital, technology move into these cities as well. Yeah. And I just want, I want to make another point actually about Indonesia, just so you can understand, just so people can understand the growth potential. Mm. Okay. So Indonesia itself, right? So GDP growth over 5%, that's probably going to be sustained. It's probably going to get higher. But something like 73%, okay, of Indonesian SMEs and businesses don't yet have direct access to um, an online presence. Wow. And that's a, that's a real statistic. I can give you the source for it if you want. And more than that, 82% of them, so only in reverse 18%, actually have access to be able to do any kind of e-commerce. Do you know how many SMEs there are in Indonesia? It's like 40 million. There are 2.7 million SMEs in Thailand. That's a gov- that's government data. There are probably more. 40 million? Okay. Wow. 40 million small enterprises in Indonesia. And again, there are probably more because there are probably some that are undocumented. But that's not a negative statistic. That's positive because it wow. means that all of the potential growth that's there hasn't hasn't occurred yet. Yeah, yeah. Okay? That's it, You hear those figures about SMEs in these places, Indonesia as an example. I mean, I hear the numbers in China when they say, yeah, you know, I mean, like 40 million in Indonesia, but yeah, China, 10 million new businesses last year. 10 million new businesses <laughs> last year? Is that is that a typo? Is that possible? <laughs> it looks 10... like it has a zero, an extra zero on the end, but it's probably got an extra zero missing right. to be fair. Can you imagine like the new business registration office, like the amount of paperwork those guys are dealing with? It's just incredible. I can't imagine yeah. any sort of comparison anywhere else in the world, but you mentioned like 40 million SMEs in Indonesia. That's just Indonesia. And it's so far. I mean, in terms of online presence, what will happen next? Well, you know, it's only, the only way is up. Yeah. But think about this too. Here's a statistic you won't believe. 
Okay. But again, we went through, I was working on something else today and then we went through some of these statistics. One of the other reasons why it's so significant to get these businesses online, right? In Indonesia, in Vietnam, because the numbers are similar in the rest of these countries, right? In Vietnam, in the Philippines, in Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, even in Thailand, those numbers are just a little bit lower, right? Singapore is an outlier, so it's different. But once you get a business online and discoverable online, it has the ability to increase its revenue by 80%. Wow. Okay, and again, that's that globally, it's not just Indonesia, right? That's everywhere in the world. In other words, right. an online business, a business that's discoverable, so a business that people can find that has a location that's verified, okay, and data that's curated associated with it means that <clears throat> now more people can find it. Even people in its own neighborhood can find it, but people that are outside the neighborhood can find it. Giving it the ability to do online commerce increases its ability to increase um, growth in that company by 80%. Yeah. That's not my statistic. I can give you the. I can actually send you a link that has that that has that data in it. I think it was PwC or some other consulting company actually published that, and right. that's really impressive. What does that mean? Remember, we talked earlier about the comparison between the UK and Indonesia from a GDP per capita and just a GDP standpoint. Uh-huh. So, as you have companies in the region that are purpose built, and I know these companies to get those enterprises. Just an online presence, think about what that does to GDP growth. Yeah. 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 Just just can just try to conceptualize that. That's insane. Okay. You've Go got ahead. access as well to one of the key messages. I mean, obviously mobile first is well understood in Asia, but one of the key messages in this report that we're giving away to uh, listeners is that the you know, a key aspect of it, especially places like Indonesia, is that mobile gives you access to the middle classes. You know, it's the middle classes who are driving this, you know, uptick in consumption. And they're doing it through their mobile phones, smartphones. Yeah. And, you know, so all these SMEs have access to a new market, effectively, of people who, you know, have money to spend. And that will then create markets for stuff which never really had a market before, like, for example, travel or all the sort of the leisure industries, which were sort of very sort of confined to localities. But, you know, if you're, you could be a guy in Indonesia in a place like Jogjakarta, which is a very cheap city to live in. Yep. And then you could be servicing the big metropolis in Jakarta, you know, like a couple of hundred kilometers away. But you could just, you know, you could be coming online, servicing a middle class of Indonesians and, you know, offering travel services from a, you know, $100 a month office in Jogjakarta, right? I mean, that's yeah, exactly. the, the reality, is it? That's the cost advantage that these places have, right? And they have access to hundreds of millions of subscribers, potential users, right? Right. So in the old days, you used to work on something called mobile youth, right? I think there are very few people that have more knowledge about not just the mobile market, but how the youth impacts that market and the growth that's associated with it. And that's really important in the context of, what's happening in Asia as well. I'm just going to throw out another statistic that will be included in this report. There's 750 million people, okay, in Asia between the ages of 15 and 24. Yeah. Just think about that. Somewhere around 60% of the world's young people like live in our neighborhood. 750 million people is like almost, I mean, it, it, I don't know, people will, I'm sure crucify me for this, but it's almost USA plus Europe, right? 
in it terms is. of actual yeah. population numbers, not just young yeah. people. But think of those markets, right? That's just young people. Yeah, and I mean, if you think about you, well, I don't want to talk a lot about age necessarily, but right, if you look at say, like more statistics, right, like this is the youngest region in the whole world. Yeah, it's you, just so young. Well, and, you would have seen that in India. You were in India a couple of weeks back, right? I'm sure you right? really would have felt yeah, that. Yeah. Right. right so, so in, yeah. So what the Indian what the Indian government actually was telling us. So somebody from the Indian government related to the, the current government was saying like in India is the youngest population in the world right now, and there's a 15 year window where they kind of have to take advantage of that age because it's like more energy, less medical yeah. bills, right? Harder working, highest earning potential, all that kind of stuff really matters, and you see it across the whole region, the whole region, right? That's why, like we said, 60 percent of the youth is here. And, you know, one of the really interesting things, you know, Japan, very wealthy country, but very old. Yeah. In, oldest in the world, maybe. Is it? Yeah. yeah you you it really, is. you get a sense, don't you? You're walking around just how many old people there are here. And, <laughs> you know, we, we, do you remember we went to Fukuoka and we, you know, we went to that yeah, startup yeah. cafe. It was actually, it used to be a school, but that's, yeah. that's, that's indicative, isn't it? That, you know, they're closing schools down. Yeah. I hadn't thought about it, but yeah, you're right. Hey, yeah. you, you called me out on mobile youth. I want to share this with you. There's uh, two thousand. Go back to two thousand and seven. I know it's like a different millennium almost, right? Yeah. Two thousand and seven. Um, looking at the cover of Forbes magazine. <laughs> this two, is famous now, right? It's going around. Yeah. Two thousand and seven. Forbes magazine, and on the covers there is a headline that says Nokia. One billion customers. Can anyone catch the cell phone king? So this that was is two thousand and seven. Yeah. 2007 november 2000 november the 12th 2070 you can look it up right wow that that's and you know the interesting thing about that and this is all in the context of young people and why young people are important for the future I mean, we all know that they are the future but they drive change they drive adoption of new technologies so you know where you have big populations of young people you have a lot of positive impact on the the technology and this is so relevant to the people that we talk to in Asia Tech podcast right but here's the thing 2007 i remember doing uh effectively like street interviews with young people where we'd go out and talk Did to teenagers yeah talk to teenagers cool. and i remember talking to one guy 13 and we we were he was 13 years old we were, we were asking people, hey, you know, what do you think of these brands? We say, what do you think of MTV? Oh, it's cool. What do you think of Nike? Yeah, great shoes. What do you think of Nokia? And I remember specifically, this is so unscientific, but it was the turning point for me. I said, what do you think of Nokia? He just went, meh. In only the really? way that a teenager really? could do. He was 13 years old. We captured that video. I showed it to Nokia and they looked at it and think, oh, these, they said to me, exactly, these are not our customers. Yeah, but they are your customers in three years. Exactly. Look but where they, they are now. Because all those, because all those <laughs> kids bought iPhones or Android phones, to be fair, right? <laughs> exactly. So when you have 750 million young people, that's where the future happens, right? You know, I think it's a great quote. I can't remember who said it, but somebody, I'm sure they can tweet it as a letter now. The future is out there. It's just not evenly distributed, right? William Gibson, he's one, like, one of the first, he invented the word cyber cyber something cyber he what he came up that word cyber he's one of the 60s 70s sort of you know prophets of the the information age he said the future is out there it's just not evenly distributed so when you look at 750 million people in asia under the age of whatever these young people that's the future 
there it is. What's going to happen next is going to happen there first, right? Yeah, it really is. And, you know, those are the world's biggest customers in the next, like, five to ten years. And they exactly. just are. It's uh, that's that's just undisputable or indisputable, whatever the right word is. But yeah, those those kids are going to now grow up to be the people with the most money. We have another statistic which I'm just trying to find, right? That says that the highest wage earners is it in China and in India? Do you, mm. We talked about this earlier, right? Are are really young, whereas in the United States or maybe in Western Europe, it's between like 55 and 65 is where the highest earners are. What does that mean? Because yeah, yeah. Well, what that, does it at mean? At that age, well, I'll tell you exactly what it means. It means that if you're already the highest earners, as you get older, your earning potential continues to sort of trend higher hmm. into your 50s and 60s. And if they're already earning a ton of money, they're going to earn even more money later. And this all kind of ties together with you've got a market with the most people in it, right? There are more people inside that circle than outside that circle. You have the youngest population in the world. You have one of the fastest growing GDPs in the world across the region, not just in any particular country, right? Mm -hmm. With, interestingly enough, let me just get this right, Singapore probably has the lowest GDP growth because it's already the richest, right? So that's not necessarily negative. It's just going to be a fact of life that the less you have to begin with, the the slower you're going to grow. But I just want to throw these numbers out there. According to the IMF, you know, Myanmar, even with all the political turmoil there, over 7%, Laos 7%, Cambodia 65 Philippines 6 Like it just keeps getting higher and higher um, for these countries. <clears throat> and Thailand growth is going to start accelerating. That's almost 4% as well with Malaysia, Indonesia, and Vietnam all above that. And the U.S. is 2.3%, and that's slightly anemic with Japan at, like, less than 1%. And I don't think that those sort of – that trend is not going to go away. Well, you sort of mentioned that that chart. Let's let's go back to that because that's sort of driving a lot of this GDP growth, isn't it? There's this young urban mobile population who are earning a lot more than their parents, right? Yeah. And they're earning money a lot earlier in their career. So – Back to the data. This is this is the UN and Morgan Stanley data. So the peak earning potential in China is between the ages of thirty and thirty-four. So if you're between thirty and thirty-four, and you look around you, these are the people with the most money. These are the people who are buying the properties, buying the cars, buying the luxuries, and so on. In India, it's thirty-five to thirty-nine. However, in the US, it's fifty-five to fifty-nine, which is significantly higher. Right. So. Yeah, much higher. That that creates a, a, an interesting dynamic in society as well. The, the, the people with the money have the most say, but they're also buying the things relevant to that age group as well. And that's drive. I mean, you talked about Indonesia as a high growth market, like one of the youngest markets, right? Right. Whereas the oldest markets tend to fade, right? Singapore is an example. US is an example. Japan is the best example. Who's yeah, working? Who, who's supporting all these old people, right? I don't see right. all those robots we've been promised. <laughs> Neither do I. I don't think those. And it's funny. We can talk about robots too, right? Um, and we'll do that, like I said, as 2018 progressive, right? But but I have a different view on what robots are going to do and what technology is going to do. And I think actually some of your smartest venture capitalists in the region will agree with me and we can find out what that is later, right? But I don't think they're going to take over everybody's job. And even if they do, we'll figure out what new jobs are going to come into the process. But I think the more important thing that you're talking about is that just like when you were doing interviews for the mobile youth, 
those are your customers. Nokia was completely wrong. And they're already earning a lot of money out here. They're already innovating. They're already creating more patents. They're already growing faster from a GDP perspective. You know, one of the things we haven't talked about at all is, you know, globalization and optimism, right? Mm. You want to go there? This is fascinating. If if you lift a little on that, we don't have enough time to do all of that. Where do you want to start? No, we don't, but I I just wanted to point it out. Like, if you go and you ask... You know, the developed countries in the world, do you think globalization or, you know, just having interconnected economies globally is a good idea? You know, Asia has the most optimistic populations and the most open Mm. to globalization than any other region in the world. Yeah, quite significantly so, right? Yeah, and that's not according to me. That's according to Pew Research, right? Right. So that's incredible and like i said all of these things right and yougov has the same kind of statistics but all of these things are driving you know all of them in combination and all of them separately are going to drive what's going to be a super dynamic um economy from an innovation standpoint from a technology standpoint we haven't talked at all about the impact that ar and vr so the augmented reality and virtual reality are going to have on education mm. there's so much to talk about hey listen Go go back to that globalization point, yep. that, that YouGov survey. I and mean, that's fascinating because Vietnam has come up a few times in our interviews. You, you talked to Marcus Ellison. We did Giovanni Zangani yep. and Stefano yep. Pellegrino, yep. you know, all based in Vietnam. And that question about is globalization a force for good? When people think of Vietnam, the obvious things people are going to think about, if you're outside of Asia, don't have much knowledge of Vietnam, you think about Vietnam War, you probably think, like, if you as an American turned up in Vietnam, you know, they would all be coming out of the bunkers, shooting you, throwing yep. bombs, etc. You know, you'd be the enemy, and things haven't moved on really much from the Vietnam movies you saw back in the 80s or 90s, right? Yep. But that question, is globalization a force for good? Vietnam, interestingly, of all the countries in the world, came out top. 92% of people said, yes, it's a force for good. Compare that, let's say, to the USA. 40% yeah. of people in the US said it's a force for good. That, for me, is fascinating. That that was an eye-opening. I didn't realize how pro-globalization places like Vietnam really were, you know, given their history. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know what to say. Like, I've looked at this chart, like, all day today, and... Like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Is it nine or eight of the top are all Southeast Asia, Singapore, Indonesia, Malaysia, right. Thailand, India, Philippines, and Vietnam, right? So India's in there too. So Asia. And as you go further and further down the list for countries that don't like globalization as a force for good, countries like Australia are less than 50%. UK right. is less than 50%. USA is 40 France is 37 And I think if you just keep going down those lists, you'll recognize these countries. And it's almost like, We've benefited from globalization from 1980, you know, for the last 30 years, and now we hate it because now it's your turn. And it's very, that to me again (laughs) is indicative of the way these countries generally feel, which is let's let us benefit all the time. And then when it's time for you guys to benefit, let's like start a war or let's take away globalization. Let's not participate in TPP. Let's make the rest of the world, um, a detriment as opposed to a benefit for them. And I, and I, and I think what's, but what's going to happen, right? And we talked about this really at the beginning of this conversation was it doesn't matter anymore what they think. Right. But isn't it interesting that you go, you talked about the, the rankings, the, the bottom three countries. 
UK, USA, and France. They were like of all the the culprits for stomping on countries in the last yeah. two hundred years. Those three were the worst. UK, we, we, we can say that we, we qualify because we're two thirds of that category, right? Yeah, UK, yeah. USA, France. But then you know, look at the top: Vietnam, Philippines, and India are the ones that probably thought, "Look, we've just had enough of this globalization nonsense the last couple of hundred years. You've just come over here and messed up our countries: Vietnam, Philippines, India, India." Um, yeah, they've been shafted royally by the British for a couple of hundred years. And the Philippines obviously have had a bad history. States, yeah. And Spain before them, right? So yeah. Vietnam, obviously, we know the history. But those are the most positive. You know, it's, it's just incredible how, I mean, a lot of that, I guess, goes back to this point, isn't it? These young populations probably, you know, think, well, that's all behind us now. It's like now it's time to, you know, rip off a new sheet and start again. Yeah, and look, I've been saying this for years, right? But there's no better – and pick a country. I'm going to say like fill in the blank, whether it's Vietnam, Philippines. And I said this when I was in India and everybody smiled at me, right? There's no better time to be a young adult in India. There's no better time to be a young adult in the Philippines or in Vietnam. And if you ask the previous generation, right? So the parents of those young adults, they're so happy for their children. Like you said – you know, whether it's imperialism from the United States in, in uh, the Philippines or Spain, right, or in, in Vietnam as well and the UK and its relation to India, you look at those populations now and the parents there have sacrificed a lot so that their children today mm. can be optimistic about global growth and the impact that it's going to have on them their ability to innovate using technology, their ability to have GDP growth per capita that's over 5%, 6%, whatever it is, it's high. They believe that's going to be sustained, right? It gives India the right to have, not the right, but gives India the, the ability to be the youngest country in the world and in the next 15 years to just become one of the most powerful and economically wealthy countries in the world. Um, we haven't even spoken about that, right? Like if Indonesia right. is going to outpace the growth in the UK, What's going to happen as India continues to get more and more organized, more and more technologically advanced, more and more innovative? Right? It's, yeah. just, it's just going to happen writ large over the whole region. Yeah. I mean, it's to, without sort of jumping ahead too far, that the going back to that point about optimism and openness. So important. Yeah. I mean, there's a real tangible, the real tangible benefit in business, isn't there? I remember we interviewed Don Fan from Embe, who was a second-generation Vietnamese-American, yeah, 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 yeah. moved back to Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh City, set up his e-commerce uh, baby products um, platform right. there. But, you know, I was expecting them to say, A, that they're going to, you know, Vietnamese would be really hard to deal with in terms of, because you're dealing with a lot of suppliers. There's a real them and us attitude as well when you're dealing with suppliers, especially when you're dealing with foreign suppliers, you know, or, you know, dealing with foreign markets and domestic suppliers and all that kind of stuff. But he was so positive and also his French uh, co-founder as well. It's like, you know, who, who doesn't have any vested interest in, you know, selling the Vietnamese culture. Right. But, you know, he's right. just saying right. it went out there. He went to the suppliers, the factories. They really wanted to do business with him. He, he couldn't speak fluent Je I mean, Vietnamese. So not a problem. They wanted to help him. You know, all those kind of things. That has a real tangible impact on doing business. You can imagine the flip side of that. If you went to another country, I won't name any names, but... You know, you could easily go to a country where they were very suspicious of foreigners, um, you know, wanted to shaft you at every stage of the deal, you know, would try and, you know, win at every stage of negotiation on the cost, all that kind of nonsense. You could imagine just you, you'd give up, 
you think, oh, look, screw it. You know, throw your toys out the pram. I'm not doing yeah. business here. Right? I'm going yep. home. Yep. But that wasn't the case. And so no, that has a real impact on getting stuff done. It really does, doesn't it? And this, you know, there's a whole section in this report that we put together called getting stuff done, right? I mean, I won't say the words, but yeah. And, and the data around that, the ability to get stuff done. And remember, there's all this pent up, and this is what you were alluding to, right? And what I was alluding to earlier is that there's a youth population whose parents had been repressed for, you know, not just their generation, but the previous generation. And all they've wanted was to get their freedom back, the freedom to, to innovate, the freedom to have new ideas, the freedom to implement new technology, and the freedom to like have a better life for themselves and benefit from this globalization as well. Mm. And this pent up demand is making is creating like one of the fastest growing regions in the history of the world, and everybody's getting richer, right? The one like there are a couple, there are a bunch of other things that I wanted to talk about today, but I want to talk about um, the impact of female entrepreneurship yes. and the growth of female wealth in Asia, because I think it's really important. It's something that you and I have spoken about. It's something that we find very important, you know, whether it's talking to Nikki at Akin Asia or <clears throat> the social entrepreneurs in this region, or just all the female entrepreneurs that are just out there kicking ass every mm -hmm. single day. Right. Even Rena Neo was like, there's never been a better time to be, or yeah. a better place by the way, to be a female entrepreneur. And, and she said, what, I don't think there's anything getting in the way of women in this region becoming like the greatest entrepreneurs in the world. Yeah. And if you then go look at some of the stats, do you want to, do you want to say what these statistics are? Yeah. I mean, Rena Neo was talking about a glass ceiling. She says, doesn't believe yeah. in it, right? Doesn't so, believe in it at all, right? Yeah. I mean, uh, it, that's it. If you don't believe in it, it doesn't exist because it's not really exactly. there, is it? it so, yeah, there's some real interesting stats. There's, I mean, there's one about the billionaires and there's one about labor force participation, right? And I think, you know, let's step back a little bit. When people think of Asia, I mean, let's go back to our original homes, right? The US and the UK. The typical views people had of Asia and the view that I held of Asia, you know, when I grew up was that it was pretty, you know, it was behind the times when it came to females and female rights and entrepreneurship especially, right? Yeah, and I don't think that that's probably a view held by a lot of people today, right? That, that's because yeah. you know they tend to view the West, quote unquote, as the you know the the vanguard of female emancipation, right? Rightly or wrongly, yeah. Because yeah, know, we, we all watch Fox News from time to time and we hear it differently, right? So <laughs> we've got these two pieces of data: labor participant, sorry, labor force participation rates by females, like. China is 60, I think about 62% and USA yep. 58%. So there's more yep. female, females per person more likely to participate in the workforce in China than the art than the USA as an example. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because you would have thought the USA would have been one of the highest in the world. But the interesting part, would you want to talk about these female billionaires? This is just really interesting. This story, which is quite untold really, isn't it in the West? Yeah, I mean, I, I just don't even know where to start. Let's just say this. So according to a report put together by a firm where I used to work, UBS, okay, in 2016, you have to see this chart. So we'll distribute this too, okay? It says that most of Asia's female billionaires are self-made. Hmm. There's, so there's, there's a little bit of a, um, a subtle dig, actually, at female billionaires outside of Asia, and that is – yeah, it's great. You are a billionaire, but maybe you didn't earn that money. Maybe you inherited that money. 
Paris Hilton's a, a, probably a good example, isn't it? Whatever, and maybe you inherited that from your mother, and that's okay, but you still inherited it. Yeah. Right? But in Asia, most of the billionaires that are female are self-made. Are self-made. Right. That's really impressive. And it's just wonderful to watch, frankly, just to yeah. be a part of it and see it. Right? Significantly and, yeah, higher, higher amounts as well. I mean, it's not even close, right? I mean, yeah. look at it. What is it? 40, what is this? 52%? Something percent. Where in the United States, it's less than 20. And in Europe, it looks like it's probably less than 10. Yeah. And that means that, and it's great. There are female billionaires all over the world, and that's fabulous, right? But in Europe, less than 10% of them are self-made, which right. means it's they inherited it from somebody, you know, mom, dad, grandma, grandpa, whoever it was. And in the U.S., it's less than 20%. So again, it's more than two and a half times higher in Asia. I love that. Yeah. These are not heiresses, right? These are people who've grafted, who've worked for it. They weren't the husbands, sorry, the wives of rich husbands or the or daughters the granddaughters of, yeah. or whatever. Yeah. yeah. They've, exactly. made this money, they've made this money on their own, which is just fabulous. And whether it's in real estate or in technology, like DNA, right? there are companies in Japan even founded by Japanese, yeah. I don't know, they're billionaires, but very, very wealthy self-made female entrepreneurs. I love this stuff. That, right? That's interesting. Isn't it? I mean, when you have these high, super high growth markets, I mean, like the, the, the amount, not just the speed, but the amount by which places like China have grown and increasingly now seeing it in these larger markets like Myanmar, Thailand, Indonesia, maybe Vietnam as well, Philippines, you know, these markets with over 50 billion, 50 million people. Yeah. Where you have that, that exceptional growth happening, then it's almost as if, well, the fact you're a man or woman doesn't matter because there's so doesn't much out all. there. You're not taking any slice out of my cake, right? We can all have our cake because our cakes are just getting bigger and bigger as we go along, right? It's not like right. you're, by being a successful woman, you're taken away from a successful man, which is probably the case in many other markets, more of the case, right? But I think where you've got such high growth, there's an opportunity for everybody, young people, females alike. Yeah, like there's so little time to get stuff done and there's so much to right. do that you're not worried about somebody, like like you said, taking your piece of the pizza away, the pie away, you're just worried about how fast can I grow, right? Yeah. How fast of, how fast can I grow inside a super fast-growing economy? And you're right. I think one of the biggest problems, and there are many problems, but one of the big problems, I'm going to use the United States as an example of why men don't want women to succeed is because the economy is growing so slowly. The pie itself has kind of already been divvied up and it's like I'm taking a slice from you as opposed to creating a new opportunity. And they don't want people to take stuff away from them. And super talented women, there is a glass ceiling there. Mm. Right. So if you're sitting in the United States trying to build something or, or or excel somewhere, there's a glass ceiling there. And and that's real. We see it in the news every single day. And you can argue about whether you believe that or not, but I believe it because I've seen it and I've seen it happen in big companies, right? But what, what Asia is telling you is not only is it <clears throat> is it possible, but it's probable, and it happens all the time, mm. and it happens at a younger age. That's the other thing we didn't talk about, right? That Asian female billionaires are younger than they are in the rest of the world um, by probably 10%, yeah. if not more. Okay, and I think that that's really interesting. It's quite tangible as well. As well. I mean, you go to places like Singapore, we've interviewed a lot of female founders and investors yeah. in Singapore as well. I, yeah. Places like Singapore, I find it, it's quite tangible. It's really noticeable about how many female entrepreneurs there are out there, you know, and I can say that coming from a place like London, which probably, you know, stands up there in the top 10 at least of places in the world for female entrepreneurs. 
but you know places yeah. like Singapore it very noticeable I mean everybody wants to see that in action go to Singapore and see how many female founders you know there are out there go to the events you know they're not sort of the token female founders as you find in some you know I, I won't name names and you can go back through some of our earlier podcasts to find which countries we're talking about but have been to some countries and some of the startup events there well they'll they'll dig up the token female to say hey look you know aren't we progressive you know that they'll bring a female on the stage and award them for being the female founder type thing it's yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah. We, we're beyond that's that over, that's over here right and look whether it's alexis from <clears throat> right or Anna Gong from Get Parks, or Anna Hautanto from The New Savvy, or Shannon Kalyanamit, right, who's started multiple companies, one of the biggest, you know, e-commerce companies in Southeast Asia, Rami, which used to be Moxie, like, the list just goes on and on, Um, and it's just great to see that, and all they're doing is saying that there's opportunities for other, I'm going to say girls, right, so young women and girls who look at them as role models, and see, not only can I become a successful business person, but I have more of a chance of becoming a billionaire, becoming like a personal unicorn than I would anywhere else in the world and at a younger age. And that's amazing as well, right? Throwing a quote from Kinderak Karin, who heads up one of the co-founders of Impact Tech. Yep. Originally from Israel, um, yep. based in Singapore. She's had, I think, two exits now in Singapore. find out more in her podcast but she said and this is a quote she says it's funny in israel i would have never dreamed of starting up and managing a business of this kind but in singapore allows you to try something new and i don't think that's just the fact that singapore offers a great infrastructure maybe what we've just talked about is key to it as well yeah i think that i think you're right actually i think that's really right and then i think that being like like we said earlier i think being a part of that is uh is really fun yeah so talking about fun, getting out on the road and going and continue <laughs> this conversation because as you rightfully sort of, uh, you know, talked about one of the key messages from 2017 was about entertainment versus conversation. That's what the yep. startup ecosystem in Asia needs, more conversation. Yep. And yep. we want to continue this Asia matters conversation because we don't have a monopoly on all the truth about what's going on out there, right? We don't no. know all the opinions. So we want to get lots of different evoke set opinions. We want to get all the conversations around Asia matters covered. So we're going to get out there. So we're we're sort of coming up. What's the plan for 2018 with Asia matters and with us getting out there on the road? Well, you make a really good point. It's a really good question. So what we're already starting to do, and we started to do this actually at the end of 2017 was go out go to the home cities of people and go interview them there and talk to them there. And we're going to do that even more this year. We want to travel more. We also want to get groups of people together. What we found is that, you know, if you get like a round table discussion going and you get it on tape, you get it recorded, you can have a really great interaction. What the idea is to get a venture capitalist in the room with a startup founder in the room, with a company sort of set up person in the room and just talk to them about, you know, one of the themes besides Asia Matters that we're going to talk about in 2018 is Asian expansion, right? How does that work? Why is Asia expanding? Which we talked a lot about some of those details today. We'll publish this report, like you said, within the next week or so. People will see that. And then just have a continuous discussion, which should be very informative to people that are both in the region and outside the region to understand better inside of a very dynamic, very active give and take 
in all of the important cities in the region. So we'll go to Ho Chi Minh, we'll go to Hanoi, we'll go to Jakarta, we'll go to Jakarta, we'll go back to Fukuoka, right? We'll go to Manila, we'll go to Yangon, which we haven't done yet, but we've promised that we will do. <clears throat> we'll go back to Singapore, we'll go to Shanghai, we'll get to Shenzhen, we'll do all of these things, we'll go on the road and we'll do that and we'll meet the people there that have opinions. We'll get different people that have different opinions with different backgrounds together, like I said, founders, financiers, venture capitalists, company setup people, lawyers, some real estate people, get them in a room together, have a roundtable discussion, and we'll publish those too. We think that's really important. And again, it gets away from the entertainment and more into let's have a conversation and let's be informative. And will we, just out of it, I know it's probably a little bit on the entertainment side itself, but will we take the Hong Kong Zhuhai Macau Bridge and do a live broadcast from that as it opens because it's due to open this year are you up for that or do you still want to take the ferry no I don't want to take the ferry actually I really want to do it and to, and to be fair that that is something that normally I would not want to do right like I never had that desire to take that bridge from Miami to like Key West I don't know why I don't like that kind of driving but I will do this because I think it's really important to kind of close part of that loop of you know, 20 something years ago, you take a ferry and now you can just drive there. Yeah. There was a very, just so you know, maybe this is the right way to end this conversation. There was a great story. And this is a real story from a friend of mine. Okay. He used to work for Donnelly. I don't even know if Donnelly publishing still exists, right? But Donnelly used to publish yellow pages and a whole bunch of financial information. They were a financial publisher, right? And I think my friend Alan was based in Tokyo and he had to get some reports that had been printed very important reports to Hong Kong. The only problem was that his boss, I believe from Chicago, called him and said, Alan, you got to get that stuff to Hong Kong. You got to get it there this afternoon or tonight. And he, and this guy was like, I, I, can't, I can't do that because the last flight from Tokyo to Hong Kong has already left. I can probably get there tomorrow. He goes, I, I don't care. Just drive there. <laughs> Now, I'm not saying that there's a bridge now between Tokyo and Hong Kong, <laughs> but I just thought it was interesting, and so I, I like telling this because it was a story that was relayed to me back in like, probably 1992 or 1993, I can't remember, um, but the fact now that there is a bridge from Hong Kong to Macau just yeah. makes me... That's awesome. Yeah. Well, you've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast, Graham Brown and Michael Waits. We're talking about Asia Matters. Just before we sign off, um, a couple of things. Firstly... If you're listening to this in, uh, well, in the archive, then this may have been published. We'll put some details in the show notes where you can go and check out how you can get access to this report. We're publishing it the second podcast of the year. We'll tell you yep. how you can go and get yourself the first installment of this four-part report. And it's going to be about 400 slides. So, you know, this is no simple five-page PDF giveaway. This is going to no. be packed with stats and data, everything you need to know about Asia, the startup ecosystems and so on, technology, all in there, all the slides that you can use in your own presentations and so on. So that'd been the second podcast. So come back and listen into the second podcast of the year. Find out how you can get access to this free. And if you listen to this now, then why don't you tweet us at Asia Tech Pod? That's at Asia Tech Pod. Let us know what you thought about some of the the conversations we talked about at Asia Matters today. We'd love to hear your feedback. If you have been challenged by any of the data that we put out there today, anything interesting you, you would like to add some of your own, 
love to hear it. You can tweet us at Asia Tech Pod and we'll reply to everything that we get on the tweet deck. Look forward to catching up with you next week. We'll, we'll let you know how you can get access to this monster of a report and carry on this conversation about Asia Matters. Thanks a lot, everybody. Thank you, Michael, for your stories and your insights today. Thank you, Graham. And there's only one more thing I want to say. If you like this content that we give you weekly, go listen to ATP Stories as well, where we interview the greatest people in the ecosystem, not just in Southeast Asia, but in all of Asia. Listen to ATP Angels as well. All of this is on iTunes, where we interview the smartest, the most successful, and the most insightful angel investors. Listen to ATP AI, where Graham talks to the smartest people in artificial intelligence um, in the region and ATP crypto where we talk about everything blockchain ethereum cryptocurrency you'll love that stuff too you've been listening to Asia Tech Podcast find out more at www.asiatechpodcast.com